Welcome to The Power of Good, a podcast series that highlights the work of people doing great things, caring things, often life-saving things for other people. These are the altruists, the optimists, the social entrepreneurs among us, those helping others across backgrounds, politics, religion, and geography in compassionate and creative ways. I'm your host, Jake Murray, and join me as I seek out these inspiring leaders and innovators to learn more about their work, what they do for others, and why they do it. Instead of saying, I have to do what's best for my kid all the time, saying, yeah, I have to do what's best for my kid, but I also really have to think about other people's kids and what our responsibility is for other people's kids. Here's a contrast. 96% of parents say that moral character in their children is very important, if not essential. However, 81% of kids think happiness or achievement is their parents' top priority. That's according to research by the Making Caring Common Project at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. It's a project that's focused on raising kids who care about others and the common good. To learn more, I spoke with psychologist and lecturer Rick Weisbord, the faculty director of the project, about how we can help foster more empathy and compassion in children. Rick, thank you for being on The Power of Good. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to talk about the reason for Making Care in Common, sort of why you launched Making Care in Common. And, you know, just to back, give you some background, you know, you've been at this work for 30 years in terms of education. You've focused on literacy. You've focused on early childhood. You've focused on education reform. You've trained teachers, counselors, social workers. Why now this shift was about six years ago to launch Making Care, Care in Common. Yeah, I think it started more like eight or nine years ago, 10 years ago, and it, it emerged from my own parenting culture that I was in. And I came to feel like in, in the parenting culture I was in, there was a lot of emphasis played, placed on success, on achievement, on well-being, very little on concern for others, concern for the common good. And I found parents organizing their entire lives around their kids rather than expecting their kids to organize their lives around other people or really tune into other people and invest in other people. So we did some surveys early on. And you know, by now, we've probably surveyed 50,000 high school students from around the country, very diverse in terms of race, class, culture. I'm abbreviating a lot, but one of the questions we ask is, what's most important to you, achieving a lot, being happy, or caring for other people? And caring comes in last. So, you know, about 80% of kids are identified either achievement or happiness as more important than caring for other people. And when you ask them, how do you imagine your parents would rank those values, achievement, caring, happiness, they're even more likely to think that their parents prioritize success. Mm. So, you know, I became very concerned about the degree to which we have elevated success, individual success, as the primary focus of childhood and demoted or marginalized caring for other people. Right. And that was the main basis for marrying, making care in common. Yeah. So th this finding about what students prioritize, has that changed over time? Well, yes. I mean, and I'm not a child historian, but I talk to child historians about this. I mean, this, 
This modern focus on happiness and well-being and self-esteem is a relatively uh, is a is a is a new phenomenon. I mean, a relatively new phenomenon. There have been a couple other eras in the 1930s where parents were focused on happiness, but that was never really the goal of child raising. That your kids should be happy. Mother's primary responsibility it should have been fathers too was to raise kids to be engaged, constructive, respectful citizens. That was the main goal of parenting. Main goal of schools was to cultivate in kids the qualities they needed to be good citizens. Boys, there was some emphasis on achievement. There certainly was an emphasis on achievement and hard work. There was not an emphasis with girls, and you know, certainly should have been, um, on achievement and hard work. So that there's a focus on achievement and hard work for girls now is a good thing. Um, but the degree to which we are focusing on achievement for both boys and girls at the expense of caring for others and this new focus on individual well-being, which is good in some respects as well, has crowded out, and we see this in a lot of our data, attention to you know, raising kids who really can empathize with other people and take care of other people. Right. What's driving that change? Well, you know, I think it's a bunch of things. And, and by the way, we just did a survey. I just got survey results yesterday from um, a few schools. And uh, it looked like um, the percent of kids that were prioritizing caring was even less than when we did this three years ago. And so that's not a nationally representative sample, but it's made me want to get a nationally representative sam sample because it looks like the trend line is going in the wrong direction. And I think it was a num number of things. I think it was economic anxiety. I think it was the degree to which people felt like they had, you know, became somewhat Darwinian, like our kids need to survive in this economy. And, I, you know, I, I understand that. It was the self-esteem movement, which came in and told kids that if you feel good about yourself, you'll be able to give more to others. It was sort of like the oxygen mask on the airplane. You've got to fill yourself up, and then you, then you can give more to other people. And, you know, it turns out that's not true, that narcissists, bullies, politicians, can, the high school athletes who abuse their girlfriends can have high self-esteem. Mm. You know, so there isn't this connection between being happy and high self-esteem and caring for other people. So it was that myth, I think, was a part of this as well. You know, an, another aspect of this was the psychotherapeutic culture. I mean, we're the most psychotherapeutic culture in the history of humankind. It's unbelievable. I mean, you know, it sort of started with Oprah, and there's been a lot good about that, but the amount of psychological talk that goes on in the culture and the degree to which kids became aware of ways in which their parents um, neglected them or harmed them in some way, I mean, that's sort of a new phenomena. And I think in people's own parenting, they became very focused on not repeating what they perceived to be the deficiencies or mistakes of their parents. So they became very focused on making sure all their kids' needs were met, particularly in middle and upper class communities. And by the way, there are big race class culture differences here too. Right, right. But particularly in middle and upper class communities, there became this intense focus on making sure kids were happy all the time. Right. And you really didn't see that. In this is the helicopter parent phenomenon. The helicopter parenting yeah. phenomenon is part of that. Right. A lot of new names, lawnmower parents, <laughs> snow pl <laughs> snowplow parents. Yeah. Are you a snowplow parent? I'm no. <laughs> um, so you're going around the country and talking to a range of different groups, um, school guidance counselor groups, uh, school leaders, um, but also talking to a lot of parents at schools about making care in common and about some of these trends and sort of how to rethink the way that we're parenting and what values we're promoting. Um, so what do you say to parents? What's your message to parents when you give these talks? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So um, I will say two things. You know, one is that 
this, the basic message that we have marginalized caring for other people and we've become so focused on individual success. I talked to thousands of parents. Nobody disagrees with me. I mean, you know, everybody seems to be concerned about this. One of the messages is, and it's also based on our research, is, you know, we ask parents, what's most important to you in child raising? And they say it's more important that my kids are caring, that they achieve, or that they're happy. So there's this gap. This disconnect, yeah. Disconnect between what kids are hearing or absorbing and what parents are saying. We also ask parents, how do you imagine other parents in your community would rank these values? And a large majority of parents think that other parents in their community would prioritize achievement over care. So in a way, a large majority of parents think the problem is a large majority of other parents. <laughs> and, and that doesn't square, right? So um, part of the case I'm making to parents is it's not them. You know, it's not just the, the parents who are involved in the college admission scandal. You know, it's not just the crazy parents out there who, who are buying their kids' community service opportunities in Belize, you know, which is something that is going on. It's not them, it's us, you know, it's, it's me too. Like we are part of this culture and in all kinds of subtle, tacit ways we convey these messages to our kids about the priority, the, 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 the importance of their own well-being and their own achievement um, right. and, we, and that we should all pay attention to those messages. So that's essentially what I'm trying to do to get them to pay attention to the hidden agenda, the subtle ways right. in which they're doing this. Are there practical strategies or practices that you encourage parents to start thinking about or using with their yes. students? Yes. So we, uh, you know, children. there are a bunch of practical strategies. So one is, you know, the reflexes to say um, to kids, all I want is for you to be happy. What if you said, all I want is for you to be a good person. All I want yeah. is for you to be a good It's reframing be, the way you're It's hearing. reframing yeah. the way we talk. Instead of saying, I have to do what's best for my kid all the time, saying, yeah, I have to do what's best for my kid, but I also really have to think about other people's kids and what our responsibility is for other people's kids. It's also doing things like expanding kids' circle of concern. You know, in the conversation we have, about empathy, we tend to talk about empathy as like a quantity, either have a lot of it or a little of it, but the much bigger, almost everybody has empathy for somebody. They have empathy for a small circle of family and friend. The much bigger issue is do you have empathy for people who are different from you in race or class or culture um, or people who have disabilities of one kind or another? Um, so a lot of the work with parents is also saying, you know, who's in your kid's circle of concern? How can you expand your kid's circle of concern? Does the parent, does your kid understand the contribution the school secretary, the custodian, the bus driver are making to their lives? Are your kid reaching out to kids who are different from them or kids who are isolated in the playground? So we are trying to give very direct guidance to parents about how they can build some of these capacities. Making care in common has really focused on how to dial down the achievement focus in the college admissions process and emphasize other qualities such as character and ethical engagement. Can you explain the work that you're doing in that area? Yeah. So, I don't know, four or five years ago, probably five years ago, uh, you know, one, one of the things that we think about in our work a lot is what are the messages that we are sending as adults to kids about what's important in life and how much of it is about caring for others? And, and what are the institutions that send those messages? And one of the things that became clear is that for a lot of kids, the messages were coming from colleges. 
Um, that's the key institution. You know, we don't have any, we have very few rites of passage in, in adolescence anymore where kids start to think about their identity and what's important to them and what's important in the adult world. College admissions for many kids is that only rite of passage. Right. So we started thinking this is a crucial, this is a really important opportunity. Like if we can figure out how college admissions offices can send different messages to kids about what's important. And Bill Fitzsimmons, who's the dean of admissions here at Harvard, became interested in this as well. And he and I developed a document that we then um, engaged lots of other admissions officers on. Now about 200 admissions officers have signed that document. And we launched this Turning the Tide initiative. And the Turning the Tide initiative is about, as you said, it is about primarily about sending the signal to young people that um, ethical engagement, caring for other people, being involved in your community, your contributions to other people, are important to college admissions officers. And it's not about the quantity of your achievements. It's not about how many AP courses you take or how many extracurricular activities you, you engage in. It's not these long brag sheets. It is about are you a passionate learner? Are you meaningfully engaged both intellectually and, and ethically? Right. It is also about leveling the playing field and dial, dialing down achievement pressure. Right. So let's focus on K-12 schools. So more and more schools are adopting social-emotional learning policies and strategies and, and um, programs to teach empathy, problem-solving, self-regulation. Um, Making Care in Common works with a cohort of schools as well. Explain that work. You know, our work is, is, is based on a couple of things, and, and there are really three main pillars in this work. Um, one is that Schools need, need data. They need data on what, how students experience in the, bu the building. And if you're, the goal here is that it's less about curriculum in our view than it is about the relationships in the building. Do adults really care about kids in the building? Do students experience adults as caring about them? Do they have trusting relationships with adults? Do adults intervene effectively when kids have conflicts of different kinds? Is this an environment where kids feel like they belong and that's inclusive? So we're primarily working on the relationships in the building. And the first thing we're asking schools to do is to collect data to see how students experience those relationships. Do they have an adult they trust? Have they been bullied or sexually harassed? Um, do they feel like anyone would miss them if they don't go to school? What's the cafeteria like? What's the you know, after-school programs like in terms of their safety, belonging, connectedness, trust? And that, we hope, will be a, a roadmap for schools and thinking about what they, you know, what the areas are where they need to improve. But a lot of the work is also just, it's light lift strategies for building empathy, gratitude, things that teachers can use in the classrooms that expand kids' circle of concern, that increase their self-awareness, their social awareness, their commitment to other people, activities that are fun and engaging. And we do that because, as you know, schools are, you know, people are stretched those so thin that we can't add another burden to them. Right. And so we're trying to you know, identify activities, and we've done, I think, a pretty good job so far that people really want to do that improve school climate and that build these skills and that are energizing and not enervating for right. people. How, you, how do will you know that it's working? So you said that you know, you've done some surveying and you're watching the trend lines around the emphasis on caring and empathy. Is that one way you're gauging whether this, these efforts are working or are there other things that you're looking at to say this school is, 
is making a, a shift in terms of values and what students One of the things we're going to start to do this year, we have had problems with schools doing the second survey. So they do the first survey, and then we ask them to do another survey at the end of the year to see if they made progress. Right, the pre and post, yeah. About half of them do it, about half of them don't do it. So that's been a little discouraging. But uh, you know, among the half that are doing it, they are doing a post and they're getting some sense about whether they made progress on any of the areas where they wanted improvement. Um, we're going to do a simpler survey that we're going to require schools to do at the end of the year, which is you know, one of the questions is going to be asking kids, um, what's most important to the adults in this building, that I'm a good person or that I achieve at a high level? That simple. And there are a handful of schools that we work where kids say, What's most important to adults is that they're good people. Right. Um, but the great majority don't. And, you know, if, if schools can move the needle some on that, that's a significant thing. I mean, if kids are reporting that being a good person is really important right. to the adults in this building, that's a significant indicator. Right. So, sorry, we're just trying to keep the assessment and the second assessment really simple, something that takes five minutes to do and isn't, isn't a heavy lift, because otherwise a lot of schools won't do it. Right. And then there's great, some of these things are working, um, but also let's look at this data together as a school and see what we might want to do the same or different. Exactly. So school leadership team, you know, that hopefully includes the principal or the assistant principal, a curriculum developer, a counselor, some teachers um, that are looking at the data together and planning. Right. So the level of polarization in the country, animosity towards those who are different or have different political views than you has spiked since the 2016 election. Uh, there's sort of this win at all costs, zero sum kind of mentality uh, that is so prevalent. Have you felt more urgency to do this work since the 2016 election? Uh, I felt a, a lot more urgency to do this work, and I feel like we have a window of opportunity here that we haven't had a long time. I'm not saying in any way that I'm happy about the direction the country's going, but it's a window of opportunity in the sense that, you know, and we get this when we talk to people around the country. People are really concerned about this. I mean, they're concerned that we're coming apart at the seams, and they're concerned about the lack of civility. And um, this is an opportunity to get back to some fundamental principles about the kind of people we want to be and the kind of kids we want to raise, and that we're not going to mend this country if we don't do a lot of work and more deliberate, intentional work around raising children who are really able to talk across some of these differences and know how to engage people respectfully. You know, certainly people who are different in terms of race, class, culture, but also people who are different in terms of political ideology and people who are different in terms of religious ideology. So we do have some tools now for schools around talking across the aisle. And we do find a lot of kids are really interested in having these conversations. They want to talk to kids who don't share their political views. Right. And they come to this with more freshness and less cynicism than adults do often. Right. So I know another area of interest and study for you is romantic love. And in this age of online dating and Tinder and uh, the sort of world, the exposure to all kinds of imagery, pornography, um, explain that work and sort of how you're trying to uh, promote a version or some, some uh, principles about romantic love. Yeah, so this, you know, this work is based on the idea. You know, Freud said there are two things that are most important in life. One is work, the other is love. We have huge industries that are preparing young people for work. I mean, schools prepare people for work. 
all kinds of jobs programs, a lot of conversation about work. We do almost nothing to prepare young people for love. It's probably, I would argue, it's the most important thing we do. And, you know, part of that is sex ed is disaster prevention or absence only. It's how not to get pregnant or how not to get STDs or, um, or there's no sex ed or, or, you know, very minimal sex ed in most parts of the country. It's not about the, the courageous, subtle, tender, disciplined, focused, tough-minded work of really learning how to love somebody else and develop a relationship with somebody else. And parents don't want to have this conversation either. You know, I think, you know, we're trying to, I'm trying to understand this, but about half of parents, you know, have gone through divorces. About half of parents are saying they're not happily married. So I think parents feel like they don't have a lot of wisdom to, a lot of parents feel like they don't have a lot of wisdom to share about this. But just because you failed in a relationship doesn't mean you don't have wisdom to share. So, you know, in a way, we're saying the big talk isn't the sex talk. The big talk is the love talk. Like, can we pass on wisdom to our kids? about how to love well and how to have a healthy relationship. And if we don't, you know, the default is that kids are going to get me inundated with images about what love is from the media. And I think that's where kids mostly right. learn about love, right. from TV and film. And I would argue that the images of in movies and, and TV of love and songs of love are more damaging than the images of violence. You know, this idea that love is this chemical attraction, that you've got to cling on to love no matter how much somebody is hurting you or abusing you, that you've got to hang in there. I mean, these are really dangerous ideas that people right. are inundated with. Right. You know, the conflation of infatuation and lust with love all the time. Those right. are some things that the media really... Um, right. You know, they're, they're, they're also really positive examples, but... Um, so, you know, I just think this is an area where adults have abdicated a really fundamental responsibility. Like, we really have to step up and take charge and talk to young people about what a healthy, ethical, mature love relationship looks like right. and how you develop one. And there's plenty of resources on how to talk about sex. Yeah. But how to talk about love is there's a big drop off. There's very, I mean, we find very little. You know, there's some things on healthy relationships, which is really about. You know, it's all things like communication and in a relationship and problem solving in a relationship and, you know, th things about respect in a relationship. And, and those are clearly important things, like how do you have a healthy relationship? But it's not really about love. It's not about how do you distinguish between infatuation and love. You know, I ask um, my students every year, or, you know, when I, when I talk about, when I present about this stuff, I ask audiences, the young person comes to you and says, I'm in this relationship with somebody. How do I know if I'm in love with them or not? What would you say? And, you know, nobody, a lot of people really don't know how to answer that question. It's a hard question to answer. Um, right. And we don't really have vocabulary for talking about these different emotional states. What is mature love? How does that feel like in, in relation to infatuation or lust or one of these other feelings? So that's partly what we're trying to do, is to get people to better identify this. Yeah. Does re religion play a role or have a framework for helping to think about love? or is You know, it's a good question, I, and I wish I knew more about it. There are some religions I know where there is counseling around relationships and love. Um, I don't know how often that happens and how, you know, how often young people are participating in it. Um, you know, there are also religions that are very pro-abstinence and, you know, have shut down conversations about relationships, too, um, yeah. out of fear that talk about sexuality in particular is going to encourage sexuality. So good and bad things going on. Right. Yeah. 
So I'm wondering, given all your work and given the recent sort of state of our country and the sort of the animosity, are you hopeful in the long term about our ability as a society to care for each other? Well, it's a wonderful question. I, um, you know, in the moment, <laughs> it, it, it feels hard to, to be hopeful because I don't feel like we're moving in the right direction. I feel like we're moving in the wrong direction. I think in the big picture, I do feel hopeful, though. I, I, you know, I feel like, and it's, you know, in a way, it's hopeful when you look at history because this is not the first time we've been terribly divided as a country. There are other times in our history we've been, not, I'm not just talking about the Civil War, where we've been just as or, or more divided as we are now. There are other times where there are news bubbles where people were just reading views that echo their own. This isn't the first time we've experienced that either. And I do feel like there's a critical mass of Americans who really want decency and respect and constructive engagement and compassion. Um, you know, in some of our, we're doing surveys, starting to do research on this, and that's one of the things that comes up in our research is the number of Americans who want more generally, more civility and more respect and more compassion. And, you know, Obama was, a you know, my point of view, a tremendous moral leader. And I don't think um, the constituencies he's brought together are lost. I think those constituencies and even broader constituencies can be pulled back together again. Right. So my last question is, who inspires you? Besides for you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, um, who inspires me? Uh so, you know, there are people, I think the people that have really inspired me are the people that have, have shown real moral courage. Um, and, you know, I just mentioned Obama. The Obamas are tremendously ins inspiring to me. Um, you know, I was just reading about Fred Rogers, and I know it sounds odd, because when I was a kid, Fred Rogers just seemed so saccharine to me, and I couldn't stand him at all. But for his time, Fred Rogers is a very courageous guy right. and took up a lot of issues that other people were not taking up. Um, and I've certainly had personal mentors that have inspired me, and I think the characteristics of those personal mentors were, you know, mainly two things, that they really were about other people in some fundamental way and improving the lives of other people. But they also, you know, they were uh, big hearts, but also hard heads. They were really rigorous and serious about the work. Right. And those people really inspired me. Thanks, Rick. You bet. And continued good luck with making care and comedy. Thank you. This is a pleasure. That's it for this season of Power of Good. Stay tuned on social media at Power of Good for news about the next season. Thanks for listening. Power of Good is a production of Ink House, an integrated PR agency of and for changemakers. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about people doing great things in creative ways or to share your story, visit us at inkhouse.com agency insights and be sure to follow us on social media at Inkhouse PR.
If you want to connect directly, email us at powerofgood at inkhouse.com.